Hello, everybody, and welcome to Critical Thinking, episode 19. Uh, This is a special episode. Uh, This week, we are not talking about Critical Role, episode 20, but instead, we are talking about the recently uh, pre-released Taldori Campaign Guide, uh, published by Green Ronin Studios and by Matthew Mercer, with the assistance from James Heck. Uh, I think that's Heck or Hayek. I can't really tell. It's H A E C. Hake. Hake. That one. Um, but yes, uh, we're so uh, we're we're sort of we're doing sort of a. Uh, I guess the best way to describe this would be sort of a crossover episode with the Dash Twenty review. Uh, instead of talking about Critical Role as normal, we're going to be talking about this campaign guide and sort of reviewing it in the similar fashion to how we review tabletop games on the Dash Twenty, but with a bit more of a narrative, flavorful uh, discussion on top of it, as we do regularly here on Critical Thinking. And by uh, by we, I mean us. I'm John uh, at John A Bates on Twitter, and with me is Jack. Hey everybody, I'm Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm JThomas411Mania on Twitter. So, with the at in front of it. Yes. Uh, and, because, and, you know. and fitting with our traditional method of opening critical thinking, I'm going to read the introduction uh, from the campaign guide <laughs> nice. as written as in, in the words of Matthew Mercer. Um, hopefully there are a few less... Uh, Grammatical issues with this because uh, he actually wrote this. Uh, oh God! Spouting off the top of his head. Um, Go! <coughs> I immediately start coughing. Welcome to Taldore, the first of hopefully a number of campaign guides and world books within my brackets Matt's own crazy creation, Exandria. This world was born as a natural evolution of a homebrew one-shot game that spiraled into an ongoing campaign and eventually the unexpected phenomenon of our live play stream, Critical Role. Never in a million years would he have ever anticipated the attention our little D&D game would acquire let alone the extensive level of world-building he would put into creating and flushing out this realm from within his own imagination. Exandria is a true labor of love, a gift for a gift for his players, a gift for and a gift for our community. When the opportunity arose to take his scrawling and notes and put them down in a comprehensive tome for others to enjoy and manifest their own stories within, the wonderful and dawning idea immediately filled him with inspiration and determination to produce something he hoped would be worth your time and appreciation. I have never he has never written anything like this before. The process has been delightfully challenging and rewarding experience throughout has been a delightfully challenging and rewarding experience throughout, and he and his talented allies in its creation. And he has his talented allies in his creation to think. So far, it's fine. I'm just fucking up. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're forcing yourself to, to, to change, like, two words a sentence. So yeah, it's right. understandable. Yeah, you're jumping from, like, first to something yeah. else. Pick he now... Person. He now stands at the end of his journey of putting this unique, personal, and colorful world onto paper from within his head, and he is extremely proud with what he has done, and he sincerely hopes you feel the same. Within these pages lie the tools to create, introduce, and run your own adventures within the continent of Taldore, either before, during, or after the adventures of Vox Machina. You will learn about the history of the realm, the figures who guide it, and the powers which may invoke and alter the paths of the next wave of heroes you summon within. He offers you the necessary materials to create legends, and he hopes you enjoy bringing them to life. Matthew Mercer. Um, 
so yeah, this is this campaign. This campaign setting is literally his brainchild. Uh, everything that he has written down uh, with the assistance of the other players and the other members of Critical Role and Vox Machina, um, and everything that's sort of been created up until uh, a point recently in the Critical Role uh, episode series. So we are going to do our best to not spoil Critical Role in the reviewing right. of this book. That being said. Spoiler human, alert. That being said, <laughs> human human error and unforeseen consequences force us to issue a spoiler alert right now. Right. Uh, so just be aware there may be minor or major or catastrophic spoilers ahead. So in episode uh, 103, no. Um, uh, so... <laughs> The book is uh, the book is splintered out much, very much like any other kind of splat book uh, with a variety of content separated out. Um, I don't. Know hey, do you think our audience any... knows what a splat book is? That's actually a very good question. Um, yes. Most people do, but just in case you don't, uh, a splat book uh, from th- well, I think the coin the term was coined in second edition or three point five. Second. Uh, the term was I think. <sighs> I feel like it was second edition because second edition was, was when splat books became um, a, a, a prevalent to the point of derision because splat uh, book is general was originally oh, started as actually, a very derogatory term. Wikipedia yeah. tells me the term originally wrote described the sports books published by White Wolf for its World oh, of really? games. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? No, that makes sense. That totally that makes, makes sense. sense. Like Still, the clan books for vampire, the tribe yeah. books for werewolf, so, tradition uh, books a, for mage, and they're just like yeah. so. A splat book uh, is a extraneous uh, extra book that has additional details, gameplay mechanics, art, world building, lore, etc., whatever for any given system. Uh, in D anD D, they were often flavorful things that also had uh, mechanics, feats, character uh, character archetypes, class archetypes, uh, racial options, things like that, and were always locked behind a $60 paywall. Um, yes. I mean, let's be honest. In, 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 in D&D 2nd Edition, 3rd Edition, and 4th Edition, they've been really good about it in 5th Edition so far. Yeah, but, uh, that was actually something when we reviewed the entirety of D and D. We we mm-hmm. spoke in uh, we spoke on this a couple times where um, fifth edition did a really good thing where they stopped making you pay for the extras. Yeah, um, with the with a few exceptions, but yeah, with those few exceptions, you were getting more than just the extras. Yeah, where in three point five and second edition, uh, oftentimes the splat would, would be nothing but extras. I'm thinking the Book of Vile Darkness and the Book of Exalted Deeds. Um, right. Like those, two I would say were nothing but extras that were locked behind two separate yes. sixty dollar paywalls and were interconnected, so you were incentivized to get both. I mean, the whole point of splat books, um, and this is regardless of uh, of company. World of Dark White Wolf was just as bad about this. Um, I can only speak to D and D's because those are the only ones that I have experience with. <laughs> I would say well, um, was worse about it, but go yes, on. <laughs> yes, no. were, well, not worse than they were as bad as three point five because yeah, they put yeah, out this. Well, yeah, I should put it this way: White Wolf started the splat, the 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 proliferation to the point that it became a a, a term coined in a derogatory manner, and then Wizards of the Coast said, "Oh." You think you can do this? Watch us top you because just look at all the 3.5. Yeah. 
Yeah, the book of the I'm warrior. Certain, the book of the. the I'm blah, pretty certain blah, there blah. are more. Right, complete adventure. Pre- complete arcane. Complete champion. Oh complete divine. God. Complete mage. I'm, complete psionic. Complete scoundrel. Complete warrior. And the Drakenovicon. I'm pretty <laughs> certain. I'm pretty certain there are more 3.5 splat books than books White Wolf has published. Probably, I would not be surprised. But so the splat Close. books were basically used as a way to extend a game's uh, a, a game version's life cycle. Because be fair, you make money off of these, the gaming audience, until recently, very recently, uh, the ro- the tabletop role playing game audience, ha- there was a certain ceiling to how much you could sell. Yeah, um, you're just you're not gonna, you were not going to get mainstream uh, uh, sales levels for this yeah. kind of stuff. So you had to, if you wanted your company to stay in business, you had to find every single fricking angle you could. Yeah. To put out another book that everybody will want to buy. Leech another fifth. That was where white wolf was better about it, by the way, there's were only like 15 to $20. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and to be, I mean, to be fair, the splat books for 3.5 are the reason why it lasted so long. Yes. Oh, God. Like, oh yeah. Oh, a yeah. big reason as to why it's I mean, so five monster manuals a had. part of people's lives like and fiend yeah. folios. Yes, yeah. and yeah, plus well, plus anyways, fiend folios. Now, I yeah. will say, as a side note, when we're go- relating back to, to to what we're talking about, I don't consider campaign settings to be splat books. Um, I would not call, for example, the Eberron campaign guide or the Forgotten Realms campaign guide in 3.5 to be splat books because these are, first of all, the, the amount of content that is in them sort of defies that that whole idea. Um, and these were providing entirely different worlds for you to 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 set your set your game in. Yes, at its very skeleton amount, it is it is you know it is extra content that you absolutely don't need. Um, but if you wanted to play in something that was not either your homebrewed setting or the standard Greyhawk, um, they provided a really invaluable. Uh, a, a resource to do that. Everything that spread off from those races of Eberron, uh, servants of darkness for forgotten realms, blah, blah, blah. Those are splat books. So we used, at least I used the term splat book to refer to, well, while it, while it was originally a derogatory term for yes. additional books, I use the term because it's quick and easy to refer to any extraneous books uh, not that are not the core book or the DMG. Or in this case, in the case of D and D, also the Monster Guide because it's an extra book. But uh, theoretically, the Monster Guide could be a splat book. But um, uh, I personally use it to so so like anything that's extraneous that is in book form that you do not need to play the actual game mm-hmm. is is what I use the term to refer to, and I will be using it throughout to refer to the. A Taldori campaign guide. That's not to say that I think of it in the same way I think of Book of Exalted Deeds and Book of Vile Darkness and the Complete Book of the Warrior and Complete Book of the Psionic and etc. 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 It's just a quick and easy term. That's fair. Uh, so, uh, in this campaign guide, we have a variety of things and four mm-hmm. chapters. Within yes. those four chapters, we have uh, campaigns in Taldori, the history and calamity of Taldori, which covers the myth of Exandria, the history of Taldori, and the rebirth of Taldori, uh, which, again, 
I just I keep running into examples of my writing and Matt Mercer's writing repeating each other. <laughs> Grand Terra Re- Rebirth, Taldore Reborn. Uh, uh, it's a thing. It's running, a thing that uh, happens. It has uh, information and things that you might need to know for running a Talgari campaign, including the pa- the Pantheon of Exandria, uh, the, the Prime Deities, and the Betrayer Gods. So uh, while uh, Exandria and Taldori was originally conceived in a Pathfinder campaign and then ported over to a D&D 5th edition campaign, um, they have gone through and reworked all of the gods that they use in the show to be... Brand neutral gods, and yes. uh, in, and yeah. in this case, the best way to put it. And in this right. game, and in this case, name agnostic gods. Um, none of them have names; they have yeah. titles, and we'll get to that when right. we get to the, when we go to the gods. But uh, it also includes uh, a bit about the races of Taldore and sort of a bit of their culture, as opposed to in other books when it when it has race sections. This doesn't have any stats. It, it does have for Raven, uh, Ravenite. Dragonborn. Yeah, it has a couple little blo- stat blocks. I but think that's not, the like, only one for yeah. all of them. Yeah, but uh, it, the the purpose is to indicate the culture and flavor of these races. Yes, Taldori, not to give you things you need to know to play them, mm-hmm. uh, or mechanically at least. Uh, it has the various factions and societies of the Taldori, including <gasps> the Arcana Pentacle, the Ashari, the Brawlers League, the Champions of Whitestone, the Clarators, the Class, the Council of Taldori, the Houses of Craghammer, the Golden Grin, the Myriad, the Remnants, and the Wardens of Syngorn. Say that three times fast. No. And then um, then in chapter two, we have the Gazetteer of Taldori, which is going to be a little bit more of the lore of the world now. We, the first chapter really establishes culture and history. The second, uh, is, the second chapter establishes... What's uh, happening? Location and setting. Location and setting. Yeah, that would be the... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, including a calendar and the passage of time, which is something that you don't often get in uh, campaign guides, actually. It's a unique calendar to that setting. Um and also yeah, something so that some, Matt has some campi- campaign guides will have them. A lot mm-hmm. do not, though. A lot of them, because because time passage is one of those things in a lot of RPGs that is kind of hand waved. Yep, fairly rare that you find somebody who keeps a specific calendar. Um, it's possible to do, but you want to have a good technique if you're going to do that. But that's a topic for another time. Yep, and another because I. I may or may not have a calendar for Grand Terra too. Hey, I may or may not have one for Eberron. Well, Eberron I definitely you didn't don't make have one for Vampire. For huh? Oh no, I didn't. No, no, I don't have my own Eberron. But I do came track. Yeah. Um, so, Whether uh, you guys do or not, I and do. Within the Gazetteer of Taldore, it lists information about the various locations of Taldore, yep. the Lucidian Coast, uh, the Alabaster Sierras, the uh, the Dividing Plains, the Cliff Keep Mountains, the Stormcrest Mountains, the Riven Mist Peninsula, the Verdant Expanse, um, and the distant regions of Exandria, and something included in this that is not often included within each of these realms. They've included story hooks for mm-hmm. appropriately leveled adventures. They yep. have like you know if you're playing a first level a first level party in this area, here are a couple of story hooks that might work for you. If you're playing a fifth level party, here are a couple of story hooks that might work for you. Not yeah, he breaks not, them down into four categories: low, mid, high, and epic level. Um, yep. mm-hmm. And there's a little breakdown. It's basically a sort of a, a five. Five levels, one to five. Yeah, it's one to five, five Five, to ten, ten to fifteen, fifteen to twenty. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, which is is definitely something unique. And they're not they are not what other campaign books will do and give you a full 
adventure at the back. Uh, right. Instead, they're just little plot hooks that you could build upon with the information yeah, provided. Yeah, you'll see these in a lot of the old uh, 3.5 D and D books as well, where they call, they tend to call them adventure hooks. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's like it's a paragraph or two, a little basis of a story and kind of a setup. Sometimes they'll have a sentence or two in there to explain what might be going on, but it's usually left very open-ended. So it's just like, hey, mm-hmm. here's here's kind of like a, a cold open for a, either a small or a larger running story arc. But it's left up to the individual storyteller or DM to decide how does this actually play out in my brain, in my, in my campaign. Right. And then in chapter three, we start to get into the mechanics of Tal'Dorei. Specifically, we have uh, character options, which include player class options, a few different things uh, for the existing classes. Specifically, there is the Blood Domain for clerics, the Path of the Juggernaut for barbarians, the Rune Child uh, origin for sorcerers, and the Way of the Cobalt Soul for monks. Yep. Then there are a few Taldori-specific backgrounds, along with their variants, very similar to in the uh, core 5th edition book, which are Clasp Member, which the variant, I believe, is member of the Myriad? Or, the myriad. Yes. Yeah, myriad. yeah, member of the Myriad. Um, uh, Lyceum Student, the Ashari, a Recovered Cultist, and Fate Touched. In addition to that, there are new feats that have... Arguable amounts of playtesting to them. We'll talk about the our <laughs> yes, opinions on those later. Um, <laughs> a section on the vestiges of divergence and uh, and notes for creating your own. Uh, the vestiges of divergence. These. I'm going to go ahead and put another spoiler tag here. If you're listening, this is yes. something that will come up later in our own rewatch of the Critical Role series. So if you don't want to hear anything about the vestiges of divergence, go ahead and skip this part right here um which are legendary artifacts that come up later in the campaign um they super powerful uh, magic items that evolve over time yeah, yeah they're very they're very powerful legendary artifacts they evolve over time and he also includes some instructions on if you wanted to make your own as well as includes some that we haven't seen in the world already yep um uh, then he has uh, optional campaign rules and guidelines, uh, which are some things that uh, that a lot of people in the community have already adopted, including many of us. Some of us having adopted them without realizing we adopted them, um, <laughs> <laughs> just because my brain works weird. But uh, they, then these are combat with larger parties, accelerated downtime, alternative resurrection rules, and a few other things as well. Uh, then in chapter four, more mechanics. We talk about allies and adversaries that are u- adversaries that are unique. To Taldore. Uh, these include uh, various aberrations, beast folk, fey, giant kin, goblin kin, and orcs, as well as the Ashari uh, unique elementals and, and unique aspects of the elemental planes, the clasp, uh, cyclopses, goliaths, craghammer, uh, the craghammer goat knight, which it's is amazing. not, which goat knights are not an original concept to Taldore, but yeah. I appreciate them whenever they show up. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I love goat riding dwarves because they make sense and they're hilarious. Yes. Uh, Ravagers <laughs> and Remnant Faithful. And then there's an index and licensing stuff in the back. Right. Yes. Oh, will we talk about the Ravagers? <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to very briefly go over the first couple of chapters because they're mostly flavor and aren't going to have a whole lot of impact mechanically on your gameplay they'll have some but not a lot and that's and and when you're when you're doing reviews of anything flavor is nice 
but it's not what you're there for. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about it, but we're not gonna Speak for yourself. Hopefully I mean, too much on it. <laughs> <laughs> really, specifically in a game review. <laughs> I'm not going to spend an hour and a half talking about the flavor of Monopoly. No, of in course fact, not. I spent no. an hour and a half talking about how much I hate Monopoly in the Monopoly review. Yes, you did. Um, yes, um, yes. It's okay. You're allowed <laughs> to be wrong. definitely a thing that happened. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a, if you it's a like Monopoly... for shit if, people. <laughs> if you like Monopoly, you're playing the game wrong and missing the point of the game. But anyways... No, uh, I'm not. No, I was playing the game right, and Power I crush—I was going to say—and I wanted to crush my the souls of my younger cousins as a child. Yes. Anyway, so anyways, um, the first chapter we have the myth of Exandria. So Matt has actually gone through and created uh, a, his own creation myth and quite a lot of history for uh, Taldore. And mm-hmm. while some of uh, and a lot of it is spoilers, um, yes, because they do touch on it. Uh, will say that it goes into the very origin and creation of the world um and all the way back to the 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 um the history ends with a very recent event in mm-hmm. the series and that's where the campaign guide starts yeah uh, where the campaign where the campaign guide sort of is set is uh I believe what episode was that? Just not 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 details, but what episode was that particular change in? Uh, uh, ninety hundred, like ninety seven. It was before. Uh, yeah, it was on, definitely before a hundred, right? Yeah. Give me, uh, give me just a second here. Yeah, the um, I think it's like basically at the conclusion of the th- villain arc 95. in the existing uh, series of Critical Role. At the conclusion of the third villain arc was yes. where this this thing picks up. Yeah, yes. so we are currently in the fourth villain arc. If you're caught up on critical, yes. yeah. Um, and then it talks about uh, running a Taldoria campaign. And one of the things mm-hmm. that Matt specifically does in this, in the beginning of this thing, is talk about how the edges of the map are not filled in. Specifically, right. uh, in, in there's actually a little blurb on page 13 of the, of the campaign guide where he says, the corner of Tal'Dorei's maps are not filled in. North of the Cliff Keep Mountains are the trackless Neverfields and the northern edge of the map. South of the Verdant Expanse is the Riven Mist Peninsula where vast jungles and the brutal, brutal Iron Authority prevent any explorer from filling in the southern tips of the map. Never forget that you are the creator of your own version of Taldore. No one playing at your table, even if it's Matthew Mercer himself, can tell you that your version of the world is inaccurate. Now, this is a very important detail, not just mm-hmm. for D&D, but for Games any in general? game in which you are telling a story uh, through through shared storytelling. Right. Um, if you are the storyteller in a World of Darkness game, or the game master in D anD D, or the or the 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 game master in Fantasy Age, or anything, or Dragon Age, or anything like that, it is always your version of whatever world yep. you're using. No one else's. Um, I mean, the, the World of Darkness has a specific rule that says that. Mm-hmm. Well, the golden and, rule is basically if you don't like if there's something in the book that doesn't fit how you envision it, put a little piece of white tape over it. And yep. is basically not, what it says. Not only is this important for you as a game master, it's especially important for you as a player. 
Because what that means is the things that you may think you know may not be correct. Mm -hmm. Just as an example, sometimes a whirlpool in the water might not be a strength save to get out of. Yes, um, but I feel like <laughs> I feel like with this book, it was particularly important to say it because yes. So we're uh, we're talking about a, a a a campaign setting made for an audience who is particularly passionate about critical role. Yes, um, and Matt Mercer set a very high standard for any dm who's going to tell who's going to tell stories in this world yeah um it was absolutely essential for that line to be put in there because it's not going to make those it's not going to lower those expectations necessarily but it does it even though I think for a lot of experienced gamers that would that would all you know be an assumed thing, it's not something that I think you should ever assume. Um, in terms of yes, you might say, okay, I really like the I really like this you know I like the setting, I like everything about it, but you know I really don't like uh, the I I really don't like uh, Stillman. So I'm going to say it's not there or it was wiped out some number of years ago. Mm -hmm. Continuity purists are going to have a heart attack over that. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> especially but, but, if but it was wiped little, out before little, Vox Machina exists. But, but, the, but this little pair of paragraphs at the bottom of page 13 is your carte blanche to say, look, no, this is, this is my story. Yeah, this is this is this is the story I'm telling. I plan for it to be an enjoyable story. I plan for it to be something that we can all gather around and have fun. But there are certain aspects in the story that I've had to adjust the setting for so it fits the particular events mm -hmm. and themes that are necessary for this narrative to proceed in a logical fashion. And once again, like we always talk about, players trust your DM. DM trust your players. Right. And, you know. Be and, adults and, and do the right thing. And that rule <laughs> is true. And again, just to just to reinforce, that rule is true whether or not you are playing a Taldori campaign in which Vox Machina never existed, or you're playing a Shadowrun campaign that takes place after a post-apocalyptic eruption. Mm -hmm. um, no, there is no even 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 in games that are dramatically tied to their world and setting. It's still ultimately your game, your story, and your version of that world. Yeah. It also, even if you're not actively making changes, um, as we know, people who are, who are in fandoms are particularly, they might have an encyclopedic knowledge of, of everything, whether it's Kaldori or I think more 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 often you find this with with Star Wars games, um, or or or, or Eberron or Forgotten Realms or whatever the case may be, where the DM may forget things, yes, or may do. get get yeah, or may get um, uh, uh, dates confused. Or you know may not have listened, may not have read that particular source book. 
uh, or or that particular Star Wars expanded universe book, which doesn't matter. They don't exist. They're not part of continuity anyways, but still. Um, or have a horrible, horrible time trying to remember. Right. Storm uh, Reach, Storm Holds, Storm Fest, Storm... Storm Peaks. Storm... Storm... <laughs> Okay, so it's Summer one Fest, city what? in Zendrick. Um, um. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And so those sorts of things, you know, that sort of fits in with that idea of, you know, this is this is ultimately the the DM setting. He's telling the story with you guys, um, but it's only the DM saying the DM should feel not feel so terrified of getting anything wrong that they're intimidated away from telling the story that they want to tell. Exactly. So the next section of the book, uh, it goes into the Pantheon of Alexandria, which we are, we're, we're going to go, we're going to go ahead and touch on that real quick. Uh, so the Pantheon of Alexandria has been separated out into two categories, the prime deities and the betrayer gods. Um, and they are all, aspects of gods that we are familiar with, those of us that are familiar mm-hmm. with D&D, but, but have been given their own flavor and switched around and have had their names changed, basically. Uh, for instance, the very first one, the Archheart, um, is described as the guardian over the spheres of spring, beauty, and the arts. The Archheart is the patron of arcane magic and the fae. Um, the founding inspired them to wander the twisted lands, seeding them with the first arcane magics and raising the most ancient of forests. It is by the Archheart's hand that the first elves wandered from the Feywild, and for this reason, they are considered the mother and father of all elves. Um, so this I'm is sorry, all... Corlin Lorethian what? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Lorethian, you know, like uh, there, there are you know there are innumerable. Uh, deities of variety war of worlds that this could represent but it's you know it's it's its own version of it and i kind of like the innate storytelling of the the concept that all gods are reflections of each other and that like when you go to a different world there might not be that same god but it's a variant of that god that exists here mm-hmm. um i very much I, I i appreciate that just sort of innate subtext uh, as it goes through these deities, um, included with a bit of so all the all the deities have a bit of their history like that, right. their alignment, their domains, uh, their holy days if they have any. The Archheart's holy day is called the Elven Dawn or Midsummer, and is celebrated the twentieth day of the sixth month and celebrates the elves' first emergence from the Feywild. In Syngorn, the elves build magical wards in certain spaces and open small doorways into the Feywild and celebrate with uncharacteristic vigor with the Wild Fey. So it gives you a little bit of flavor, a little bit of characteristic, something to sort of give you an idea of what the worshippers of this deity are like. Mm-hmm. And that's important for both Game Master and player, because oftentimes um, I, if, if, I were to, if I were to say make a character dedicated to Bahamut, the dragon god in, in a variety of different settings, um, what's inherent about Bahamut's worship? Uh, well, he's a platinum dragon and he's the king of good dragons. Okay, anything else? Uh-huh. Um, depending on your GM and depending on your setting, that may change from day to day. Um, there are a few basic tenets of 
what he is, but nothing else. And I really appreciate whenever a setting uh, goes into a little bit more detail, giving us a little bit of flavor, a little bit of uh, information about how you would play a worshiper of this character. And innately how you would subvert a worshiper of this character. character. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as anybody who's experienced anything with knows there's no cookie cutter version of a particular adherent of a particular philosophy for the part. Right. There can, there's some consistency frequently in paths of the community, but there are people who do it very differently, but still identify as a member of that faith. And there's no reason why you shouldn't see similar things in your games. Yep. yep. Um. No. Yeah. So. I mean, not to. Obviously, this this reskinning was for unnecessary uh, reasons. Um, yeah, and I think you know, uh, I think that it works really well here because um, it, it allows it allows them to do it just enough we know who we know who's being talked about in terms of so when i when i was looking at the book um i was looking at it in three different ways i was looking at it as a campaign guide to for people who are critters um a campaign guide for somebody who is not a critter and who might just you know assume it, go up at Gen Con and say, ooh, a new campaign guide for a D&D setting. What's this about? Um, and for P- and then the third would be people who weren't looking at it to, you know, start their own games, but wanted essentially a companion to Critical Role. Uh, uh, sort of a companion handbook of sorts. Right, yeah. A, um, a, a sort of behind-the-scenes guide to the yes. setting. Yeah. And the way that the way that that, that Matt and his 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 uh, uh, co-writers uh, uh, work. This is really nice because for people who are who are for, for people who just want expanded information, it definitely provides that. We've no, I don't believe we've ever seen uh, uh, Arkhart slash Corellin. I know we've never seen Spider Queen slash Loth. Um, there's a lot of these deities that we've never heard mentioned before. Um, so it's a nice expansion of the world, an idea of things that, that, that might come. They're familiar enough that, um, that, that people who aren't familiar with critical role will look at these and, and it does the same sort of thing that, because you see, you've seen, we've seen these deities transposed across settings for decades. Loth started off in Greyhawk. She's now she's in uh, Faerun. Um, uh, uh, I think Dragonlance is fairly un- keeps its deities fairly unique, with the exception yeah. of Bahamut and Tiamat. Right. Um, but, uh, but there's a lot it's of bleed- Dragonlance for yes, a reason. Exactly. <laughs> there's a lot of bleed through between the other established settings, which of course led them to. The, the whole point of creating Spelljammer and, and that's a whole tangent for another sto- another time. But um, so this sort of effectively sets this campaign setting 
in that same sort of sort of uh, uh, meta slash metaphysical dynamic, where if you wanted to use this, you know, as this is a separate plane of existence, similar to how Faerun is sort of, you know, in the same spot, you know, opposite Eberron is opposite, yeah, Kryn is op- opposite uh, Aethys. Yeah. So on and so forth. It works. And then draw them all into Dravenloft, of course, because that's what you should do. Yeah. But <laughs> everyone needs to end up dying in Ravenloft. But um, so it, it does it very effectively. And then for people who, who are critters who don't necessarily want something entirely connected, uh, who but who want a campaign setting, the translation is very easy to make. Yeah. Um, so it, it did a very good job of serving all of those masters. And so now that we've sort of we've sort of broken down, also they have the commandments of each individual deity mm-hmm. uh, and and their symbol. Yes, uh, and it's case, really good. In this it's case, good at um, uh, idea of uh, for clerics. Yeah, the commandments for the Arkhart are create, inspire, and find beauty in all that you do. Uh, followers follow the echoes of lost magics, forgotten sites, and ancient art. For within these lie in the Arkhart's first works, and combat the followers of the Spider Queen wherever they may be. Also worth noting, while not explicitly stated, uh, you can find gender pro- gender pronouns for each of these deities um, within their description. Arkhart is they. The Allhammer, which is the next one, is he. Mm-hmm. Uh, and except and, and on and on, uh, which is which may be important for you depending on how you look at your gods. I know for me, I like to have. Uh, it, gods are representative of the people that exist, therefore there should be representative, uh, all, the gods should be, you know, representative. Uh, so I do, I do, I do like having all, running the gamut of all sorts of representation within the gods. Yeah, yeah. all um, sorts of pronoun-appropriate pronoun usage yep. there. Um, and even this first chapter, there's a, there's a fantastic structure to, way, to the way the material is laid out as well. Because he starts you off with a history, gives you a decent bit of setting, and then he goes gods, races, organizations. Mm-hmm. Which, is very, yes. which is very parallel to the way the history is laid out. You have creation, you have generation of the races, and then you have how the races start getting into the nitty-gritty of society and culture. The layout is very thoughtful. Yes. yes. Alright, so gone over sort of the basic layout of the deities. I'm just going to run through a list of them really quickly and give you sort of an idea of who they are. Uh, the next one is the Allhammer, Lawful Good, Domain of Knowledge and War. He is basically more, uh, 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 God of the Forge in every other uh, D&D thing. Um, his holidays are Deep Solace on the 18th day of the fifth month. Um, and he's, he's while he's not explicitly a dwarven god, like the, the creator of the dwarves, he is strong his devotion is strongest in dwarven communities it's 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 very yeah i mean he's the morden yeah he's, uh, he's, he's uh, morden, uh, basically uh, uh uh then can't think of the term i'm using, looking for but you know I mean. analog yeah analog that was it um the change bringer you're, you're welcome jamie the, the change bringer uh who is timora yes um, chaotic good domain of trickery in nature also known as she who makes the path um, she's the god of god of travel, freedom, and luck. Uh, her holy day is the new dawn, which is the first day of the first month, so New Year's Eve, based New Year's Day, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the Dawn Father, Pelor. Pelor. 
Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's his title in every other D&D setting. So um, his holy day is the high summer, which takes place on the 15th day of the seventh month. Um, and he is the god of light and life and neutral good. Uh, the Everlight, Serenray, um, goddess of life and light as well. Uh, the Saren Ray and Pelor sort of share those domains, but uh, operate in sort of a different uh, space where uh, the Dawnfather operates as sort of the, the lords over farming and, cult- and, and agriculture and growth that way. Saren Ray is more internalized with the, the compassion and redemption and love yeah. and sort of Heal, life healing and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Dawnfather is life grown and the, and the Everlight is life sustained. Mm. One um, thing, Sarah, uh, sorry, the ever, <laughs> the, the Everlight, the Everlight uh, reminds me of something that I really appreciate that that was done in the opening paragraph. So the Everlight here, when we look at uh, her domains, are life and light. Looking at critical role, our cleric is a war cleric. Yes. So when you when you look at that, and if you're skimming through, which I'm not going to lie, I did the first time. I, uh, the, once I downloaded, I started skimming through a lot of stuff. I, I started looking for the critical world references, obviously. Um, so I looked at that. I was like, wait a minute, but quickly look up. It specifically says, because with, with, with five, with fifth edition, a lot of the deities are given one or two domains. And that when your first glance of it is really restrictive. Like I want to play this kind of a, a deity of, you know, follower of this kind of a deity because I like that deity's worldview but I don't want to use those particular domains. This one explicitly tells you if that's the case talk it over with your DM and see if a domain choice uh, you know, see if there's another domain choice that would fit because these deities are going to you know, there are other domains that they might not specifically represent but but are still somewhat within their aspect. Oh, yeah, and and that's that's true of fifth edition, regular fifth edition as well. Um, because while the the gods are given a specific couple of domains that they generally represent, mm-hmm. their portfolio was much broader than that. Yes, and there are there are ways to work any and all cleric domains into an aspect of any divine domain. Mm-hmm. There are ways to argue for just about everything for life and light. You can even argue death as a part of the life domain. Um, yep. Specifically, it's the end of life. And if you are the shepherd of life, then you are also shepherding the end of life. Um, and so there are like, there's there. They seem restrictive at first, but they are very broad categories, each unto themselves. Um, moving on. Uh, the Knowing Mistress, uh, the goddess of d- knowledge and arcana, is sort of a mixture of Mistra and uh, Ayun, um, revered by seers, sages, teachers, and all walks of life. Uh, has no public holy day, uh, for her public worship was shattered during the Calamity, and then various other, uh, again, more information uh, regarding yep. the lore of the world. Uh, the lawbearer, 
Tear slash Tarm. Um, interestingly, Domain is knowledge, though his symbol is an axe. <laughs> or to be well, an, ac- an axe noting. with scales on it. Yes, or Arathis. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say Arathis because they're based off the the the, the Don Don War Don, whatever they're yeah. called. Yeah. Uh, so the law bearer, lawful neutral, the, 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 the domain is knowledge and is basically the, the, the justice god. Yep. Um, uh, his holy days are civilization is dawn, celebrated the autumnal equinox, usually the 22nd day of the ninth month. Um, moving on, the matron of ravens. If you can't figure that one out, <laughs> then the, you may need to. <laughs> my personal favorite deity ever. The Matron yeah. of Ravens domains life, death, and blood. Lawful neutral. She guards the she guards the passage between life and death. Um, and her holy day is the night of ascension, celebrating her apotheosis because she was a mortal that became a god. Yeah. Um, the Moonweaver, uh, which is Sayahin Moonbow. Yeah. Uh, the chaotic good domain trickery. Uh, has no holy day, but is celebrated by the elves in the night of the decade's largest moon, largest full moon. Um, the Platinum Dragon, Bahamut. Bahamut. I don't know how you could possibly mistake that one. <laughs> For anything else. Bahamut is the Platinum Dragon. This the god is just the Platinum Dragon. Yes. Um, interestingly, this one, the, uh, of all of them, this one also has a prayer included in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically the Sacred Charge, a morning ritual performed by many faithful the Platinum Dragon. I lift up your name, O first of dragons, and pray to uphold your Sacred Charge. Let me protect those around me as your wings enfold us. Let me seek for truth as your eyes watch over us. Let me strike against wickedness as your talons defend us. Let me resist temptation and falseness as your heart guides us. I lift up your name, O first of dragons, and pray to uphold your Sacred Charge. Um, what does that tell you about worshippers of the Platinum Dragon? The fact that the fact that they, of all of these, are the only ones that have a ritual prayer in the book. I mean, that tells me that layout wanted to put some, or that was a spot <laughs> that layout decided to put a little flavor text. That's honestly <laughs> the only thing. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, just because I like to look a little bit deeper than that, I mean, uh, but that's why. <laughs> It also tells me that the, 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 that the followers of the Platinum Dragon are particularly fervent and that you're going to find few, very few followers of the Platinum Dragon that are not very particularly devout. The other ones particularly formalized. Yeah, the other, like all the other gods, you can see people that sort of take them in passing and like, oh yeah, I, I pray to the Moonweaver, but it's not that big of a deal for me. Um the platinum dragon the the implication here is that that doesn't happen so much with him uh that they are universally devout um they're the catholics of Taldori. basically yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> also Most lawful good that. domains of life and war uh his holy day is the ember tide celebration and, and of the yes, day of the I, I made that joke because it kind of undercuts what you were trying to say there, John. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, next one is the Stormlord. Cord. Take, uh, guesses there. Uh, Tempest and War. Cord, uh, cord and also... Um, Tempest. Tempest. No, uh, no, yeah. not Tempest. Um, oh, no, Tempest. Absolutely uh, Tempest. God of Storms. Um, 
whose name I cannot think of at the moment. Tempest. He's one of the one of the sea gods. Anyways. Um, oh, you're thinking of um Yeah, the not yeah, not not not, not Umberly, the other one. Oh, okay. There are two. And Umberly Tem- Tempest is, is less of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. One, one's a guy, one's a girl. Umberly is the girl. I can't think of the guy's name, but Stormlord is also his title, I think. Um You're thinking of uh uh Talos. You, Maybe. Yes, Talos. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, not one that comes up very often. Umberly tends to be more often talked about. Uh, anyways, uh, the Wild Mother, Mieleki, uh alignment mm-hmm. neutral, domains or neutral. Malora. Or Mieleki Mal- Malora. I would say Mal- I would say Malora because Malora is actually referenced in Critical. Mieleki has never it, been. I think Mieleki has been. No. What? I'm Was it? pretty sure Matt has always tried to stay well away from the Forgotten Realms deities. Hmm. Uh, without, with the exception of the ones that have been referenced with another, within yeah. the Pathfinder world he took the gods from. <laughs> um. Um, and so, yeah, uh, the, the, the Wild Mother, goddess, like of, goddess of forest and nature. Um, Holy Day is the Wild's grandeur, celebrated on the vernal equinox, usually the 12th day of the third month. Yep. Um, and then we get to the Betrayer Gods, the evil ones. These ones have had a little bit less spoken of in the actual campaign, so more of these are new from a yes. narrative perspective than, than of the, the, good, the, the uh, prime deities. I um, mean, the, 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 the morally gray uh, uh, characters in me like to refer to them as the misunderstood gods, not the <laughs> evil gods. Uh, so our first one is the Chained yeah, Oblivion, so Alignment, Chaotic, Evil. Yes. Um, <laughs> so again, first one, Chained Oblivion, Alignment, Chaotic, Evil, Domain, Death, and Trickery. It is Therisden uh, for those uh, not familiar. And uh, depicted as a series of chains um, with nothing inside them. Uh I don't think any of the evil deities have holy days. No, they are not listed in any of them. Uh, Mostly because, and that a lot of that is is specific to the history. Yes, because the betrayer gods are all basically strayed from the ideals of the founding, uh, taking the taking to the destructive chaos of the primordial titans who forged the world, um, and the prime deities sort of went, no, boom, go away. Yep. And so they don't have, though their followers sort of operate in secret. And so they don't have large scale organization or holy. Their followers are cultists. Yes. Generally speaking. Uh, so yeah, so there's the chained oblivion, chaotic evil, death and trickery, uh, the cloaked serpent, chaotic evil, trickery and blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing a trend here. Um, the Crawling King, neutral evil, death and blood. Mm-hmm. Um, Lord of the Hells, lawful evil, trickery and blood. Yep. Uh, the Spider Queen. Loth. You missed one. Sorry, the Ruiner. It's because it's lower on the page than the Spider Queen's <laughs> name. Uh, it's Grumpsh. You can't Grumsh. skip Grumpsh. You cannot skip Grumpsh or Grumpsh will murder you. Chaotic evil, Tempest War. Uh, the Spider Queen. 
chaotic evil. Loth. Free knowledge. Loth. Yep. Um, the Strife Emperor. Bane. Also known as uh, Sir Tryhard. Um, <laughs> Bane, Bane is the tryhardiest of the gods. Bane is the. His name is Bane. I like Bane. Who doesn't like Bane? I mean, whether it's or not the you one like... excuse you get to go go into your D and D campaign and be like, "Oh well, taking on Waterdeep, are we?" Well. <laughs> Whether what's or not you, sad is I have unusual. What's sad is I have literally never even made that connection. <laughs> whether whether or not you like Bane, he is the tryhardiest of all the gods. And the Hi, strife oh, yeah, emperor, the strife emperor, continues that trend. I feel like Sirik's much tryhardier, but Sirik <laughs> is kind Cyric's, of Sirik's yes. name is not. Bane. That's a debate for a whole other time. <laughs> Tune in next week as as Critical Thinking discusses the Forgotten Realms campaign setting uh, uh, in a 193-part series. <laughs> the, uh, the next is the Scaled Tyrant, Tiamat. 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 Um, uh, alignment, Lawful Evil, Domain, Trickery, and War. Lots of trickery, and lots dragons. of war. Uh, trickery war and dragons. War, well, I mean, trickery and war. <laughs> dragons is implied. <laughs> it's fucking Tiamat. Dragons. Dragons it's, is assumed. It, it's, it, in the first, in the first line, the evil queen of dragons. Yes. Now, to to deviate slightly, if Tiamat is the queen of dragons and Bahamut is the king of dragons, how did that divorce proceeding go? <laughs> Horrifically. I'm guessing with I guarantee a lot horrifically. Of, of, who do you think got? Who do you think got custody of the kids? Oh, Tiamat did. I mean, it feels to me like they split custody. Oh, no, I guess they they did. did. They did split custody. Yeah, they totally split custody. Tiamat got the house, though. Yeah, like, so Bahamut won won out financially, while Tiamat won out aesthetically. Yes. She got the house and the car. He got got most of the assets, but she got the house and the car. Exactly. And why is off that the not, rails again? Why is that not a web comic? I, it should be. It really should. <laughs> so that's the end of the gods, and now we get to the races. So uh, yep. the, all, the races of Taldori are dwarves, elves, halflings, humans, dragonborn, gnomes, goliaths, half elves, half orcs, Ganassi, and tiefling. Although theoretically, there are room for any of the other D and D races within. I really yeah. want them to introduce the turtle people. Uh, because I really want to see how Grog reacts to a turtle person. Uh, if you have turtle people, then you need duck people and rabbit people, and shit gets what's weird. The, what's the name of that race, the, uh, the the turtle people? I can't think of their name. I don't know. The only Here. ones I the only ones I know are Kenku and Tabaxi, and those are birds and cats. Those are birds and cats. There is a turtle race. There was a turtle race. I think it was in. It was in, it's one of the more obscure splat books of three point five. <laughs> Tortons. I mean, Tortons, yes. Tortons. Tortons. Oh okay. my god, are you fucking yes. kidding me? Yes, Tortons. Tortons. That was the best name they could come up with. Yep. And I really hey, want it's, I, it's, and I it's I, it's better than their five E alternative, Tortle. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally turtle, but they replace the U with a different vowel. 
Uh, I know it's really, a race of beings. I really want the. I really want Grog to just see a giant walking turtle come up to him and just see what happens. <laughs> I'll that's, tell you what's going to happen. He'll be like, "Mitch McConnell, is that you?" Oh, well no, done. So, they would have to be a pink turtle without a shell, but sure. <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, not much is different between uh, between the no. races, and no, with the mostly, sole exception it, of the Dragonborn. Right. They they um, do go a, a bit into detail about the tailless dragonborn, uh the Ravenites is yes. the uh, the name of that faction. Um, so Dragonborn, depending on your setting, Dragonborn may or may not have tails. In Taldori they have both. Um the ones with tails are your standard dragonborn from the book. Uh the ones without tails uh, have an increased have an increased constitution and wisdom score, have mm-hmm. resistance to non magical slashing damage, and are slightly and if, faster. Because mm-hmm. you're not dragging so, a big ass tail behind you. Looking at and this, looking at the 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 setting as a whole, and specifically within within the races, is it becomes clearer than than Taldori as a whole, and and I'm sure that that Matt would agree, is built on a lot of the standard Dungeons and Dragons tropes. Yes. Um, you have, you know, when you're talking about the history, you have a lot of, w- without getting too much into detail there, because there are spoilers, but um, there's a lot of the a lot of the elements that you see. I I tend to look at Taldore as like the best world combination of elements of Faerun and Eberron. Mm-hmm. Um. In in a really good way. Like I'm not saying this in terms of you know it's lazy or it's you know he's just ripping off. Um, but that was always sort of how I saw Taldore. This book both reinforces it and in, in it impresses me in how he he twists it enough. It very much toes the line between a lot of those stereotypes but is enough to be unique and interesting on its own. And I look at, like, the drow is a really good example of that. There's yeah. only so much you can do with drow to make them unique. Um, they are always going to be the, the, the elves who went evil because of their goddess, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, but what the Taldori book does that's really nice is it takes that and, you know, it's still, they still turned away from the Arkheart and went for the Spider Queen. And that changed, you know, who they are. That changed how they looked to certain degrees. But where where I really like it is um, it's taken instead of what Forgotten Realms does with it, where there's a whole society of dark elves uh, that live underground. And, you know, there, there are ones that come up to the surface, but they're really good ones. And they are all drizzed. Um, it, it changes that in, in this book, they're very much, it says specifically, there are people on the brink of destruction. There is no flourishing culture underneath that somehow is constantly trying to betray itself, but still everybody's trying to murder each other, but they're still thriving. Um, and it's weird, weird how you can somehow just stick a completely isolationist in the brink of ripping itself to shreds 
in a cave several miles beneath the surface, but somehow it's still a huge threat to everybody right. who's above them. It's because exactly. at any moment they are the other and can break through the surface and kill all of you with but a thought. They I have no cohesion. Let's be honest. They're fucked. They have the drow is, It's all they really need. I have seen. I have seen, and I think. I, I think some of these critiques sometimes push a little far. But eyes, there are a lot of problematic elements to drow, mm-hmm. uh, because they are. They are the othered, dark-skinned, evil, also uh, as uh, feminist as, society. As a, as a note, they're evil because they're female god made them yes. that way and they exactly. are a matriarchal society and there's uh, and just for the listeners i'm not saying that that's what i think i'm saying that that's how they're written yes, yes. <laughs> no it is very much how they're written and, and not that that invalidates their 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 status within D or that you know well i don't use them that way because i do um but it is as written, very problematic. Here, it's a much more realistic, um, uh, uh, interesting setting where, particularly, the one thing that I really, really love in this is that when Dark Elf refugees come above ground, they aren't just automatically accepted and fine. There is no Elastrian society that is accepted well, by the just, above I just, world. I just really want to point out real quick, because we're talking about how fucked up Faerun is. Uh-huh. Um, the male-led elven gods have a kill-on-sight order for the female-led drow elven society. Mm-hmm. Yes. That just, that, that right yep. there. Yep. 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 Because um, Locke wanted to lead her own people. Pretty, I, I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I mean, there. I could go on an entire rant about Theronian <laughs> drow society and how even even when Loth is set up to be this all powerful, evil, villainized character, she's also really incompetent because yeah, she allows Veyron stuff to happen yeah, and she, she, like, she allows Elastrae to be independent and also she's not the only also not hashtag not all drow because there's also a male drow god that leads <laughs> the male drow society and they're all the mages yes all the female drower clerics and all the male drower mages, and they're all led by their own different god in a different layer, and they're neutral. They're not evil. They're neutral. Yep. Because they have a male leader. And Killaway gets killed off, but Driss gets to live. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fuck that noise. <laughs> We're saying but regardless, is... going back to Taldore. Going back to Taldore. <laughs> that is just one example, because because all of all of the set all of the the racial. Um, uh, all of the races have that where, yes, okay, you can definitely see the influence here. And it's, an, it, like I said, it toes the line. And it, they're definitely familiar uh, character types, but the book does a really good job of setting them within Taldori in their own unique way. <clears throat> and I really, really appreciated that. Yep. So, after the races and after the gods, there comes civilization and the organizations of Taldore. 
While the dominant cultures of the continent have carved structure and law from the rough clay left behind in, by the divergence, uh, these cultures each comprised several smaller factions. Whether councils of traditionally-minded politicians striving to maintain control in the world beset by chaos and danger, or a union of opportunists ever vigilant to reap the benefits of an exploitable populace, these factions drive and manipulate the social and political direction of Taldore. The alliances and tensions that can rise between the following societies can guide your adventurer's destiny across the spectrum of heroism and villainy. And so here we have the aforementioned Arcana Pentophical, the Ashara, the Brawler's League, Chamber of Whitestone, the Clarilors, Class, Council Taldori, the Houses of Crackhammer, the Golden Grin, the Myriad, the Rivers, and the Wardens of Syngorn. <sighs> yep. Which uh, can be... Say that times fast. Can that's uh, twice. Um, can be and then once in reverse. Can be uh, sort of summed up as these are the various factions of the world that have things going on that you may or may not be working with or against. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Arcana Pansophical is the Council of Mages. All of Taldori's greatest mages, uh, basically put brought together to make sure that uh, of that uh, evil entities cannot just rip holes in time and space and throw demons at the world. That's basically their job. Um, they're not good at it, but it's their job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they might be good at it. We don't know what it would be like if they weren't even around. Uh, but yeah, so and it, the, 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 the uh, rather than in other D&D books where they just have a blurb and then some examples and then move on, uh, these actually have a little bit of detail about their history, also has details about their goals, mm-hmm. uh, their relationships with other, uh, so other, other societies, and figures of interest, as well as what their basic mantra is. For example... The Arcana Pantophical follows the truth of magic. Uh, The Pantophical's myriad rules on the use and misuse of magic are detailed at length in centuries of amendments to the full text of the truth of magic. Through the truth's bizarre intricacies, though though the truth's bizarre intricacies are left up to the GM, the truth's preamble establishes three unbreakable edicts. In the eternal interest of the preservation of harmony within the realm of Exandria, we, the Arcana Pantophical, establish the truth of magic and three edicts from which none shall stray. Those arcanists found in gross violation of the truth will be punished by the full extent of this order, beyond the reach of any local law. Though the study of necromancy shall be restricted to none in the interest of magical understanding, the animation of the dead is a violation of the truth. The arcane is a tool to be wielded for the good of the people. To use its power in pursuit of wanton destruction or murder is a violation of the truth. And though the jurisdiction of the pansophical supersedes the power of local laws, a mage who willfully breaks the laws of the land is in violation of the truth. And so we have a little bit of an idea of sort of what this society is about, just in that, along with their goals, which is to, you know, sort of study, uh, study magic, reinforce the truth of magic, and prevent abuse of magic uh, throughout the world, and also prevent aforementioned rifts in reality from throwing demons out. As uh, you do. As, uh, you, know, yeah. as you do. Uh, then there, uh, the Ashari. Uh, which are a dru- which are a series of druidic tribes dedicated with guarding the boundaries between the uh, this pla- the material plane and the elemental planes. Um, the there are the uh, the Brawlers League, which is Fight Club. Fight Club meets Gladiator. Yep. Um The Chamber of Whitestone, which is the the Council of Whitestone. Whitestone um, being an independent city state that you will hear more about and. Are- Yep, and actually, fairly soon, if I recall correctly. Damn, not too far. Um, 
There is the Claret Orders, which are a order of blood, which are which is an order of 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 blood uh, clerics uh, in, and blood hunters and blood hunters that yes. is wild mount. And again, so this is another thing. This is another thing that actually reinforces my previous uh, es- estimation of the Platinum Dragon. Uh, the Claret Order also have a little bit of their religious beliefs in the book. Because um, the design team needed filler again. Right, because layout said, put it here. But also, <laughs> <laughs> as, blood, as blood flows through and invigorates the body, so faith flows through and invigorates the soul. Ever remember this, thy blood and thy faith are one and the same. Spill not thy blood, nor that of another heedlessly, but do not hesitate to spill either when the cause is just. From the Crimson Canon, a holy text of the Claret Orders. Again, Pretty interesting that the blood clerics and blood hunters kind of have uh, iterations against self-harm. Yes. Unless necessary. And it's a, it, it is another example of sort of just a little bit of extra flavor as to the kinds of people you will find in the mm-hmm. Claret Order. The Claret Order does not take people who are casually for them. You are all or nothing, bitch. <laughs> I mean, yes. I'd say that's a fair assumption. Um, and, and just like and, it's a and, fair assumption that that's there because the design team said so. And right. while while there are certainly <laughs> choices here that might be made for a visual design, I feel that they also fall in line with a flavor design. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but then let's go, I I do need to point out. Let's go to the next page. Coming up next where there's the a childhood lo- rhyme in the class in clasp infested towns. Yep. That doesn't mean that the clasp is particular. Is, no, is it doesn't. <laughs> well, actually, actually, what this means. So uh, next is the clasp, uh, which is a or which is an organization. Which is the Taldori Mafia. Yeah, basically, yeah. they're sort of a widespread thieves guild slash. The myriad mafia. is the Taldori yeah, Yakuza. So. Yeah, um, and they 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 have a wide variety of thieves and wide variety of fingers and a wide variety of pies. Um, and on their page, they have this little rhyme: "When night is come and darkness falls, lock, locks help not, nor or locks help not, or do stone walls slinking and hiding like poison asp. Close tight thy eyes, see not the clasp." Now, this also establishes some flavor. To of course, uh, specifically. That the clasp are sort of a bogeyman, have sort of a bogeyman status to the point where they have childhood rhymes to scare children into say, going to sleep. Yeah. They're boogeyman, but they're well known enough that even kids have rhymes about them. Well, yes. actually, I would argue the opposite that they're not, they are known to an extent, but not, but that not necessarily is known in detail, mythological in nature. Right. They kind of like are, uh, reminds they the feeling that it evokes is kind of like the court of owls from a Batman. Yes, yeah. Um, it's um, enough people know them that the name is a known thing, but for most people, they may as well not exist. This is just a rhyme that you know is used to get kids to go to sleep, but it has a little bit of sinister truth behind it. I'm. And, the point that I was just making is you could include flavor text. For anything in here, yes, <laughs> yeah, but they, but I do agree with John that they do a very good job of matching yes. the tone of the flavor text to what it's accompanying. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Next up is the Council of Tal'Dorei, the lead, the 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 leading uh, the the rulership basically of the mm-hmm. the Tal'Dorei itself. Um, after that is the Houses of Craghammer, um, which are the the people that lead specifically Craghammer in the Cliff yep. Mountains. Um, after them is the Golden Grin. Uh, which uh, the Golden Grin is a collective of bards that sort of travel around and, well, during dark times, the need for distraction, inspiration, and solace grows ever necessary. It was Drassig's rule that drove a group of bards, dancers, and storytellers to come together and weave the fleeting joy from the local populace and give hope. This band took the name the Golden Grin as their secret faction and traveled across the realm to offer escapism and entertainment, all while planting the seeds of discontent, rebellion, and heroism. Uh, so they are the Harpers. Yeah, yeah, they are basically. There's no other the Harpers. <laughs> they are. I would say they're a little less. Um, they're a little more laissez-faire than the Harpers are. They're a little more inspiration, hope than they are. Not that they don't handle this, but the Harpers sort of started off as with within Faerun setting started off as that as sort of a you know. Let's let let's let's uh, you know look to inspire the best in humanity, and essentially turned into um, uh, uh, MI six. I was gonna say Delta Force Bard. Yeah, Delta Force Bard. That's a really good way. <laughs> Basically, turned into they, they one went of the from preeminent secret societies for good within yeah. the CTU. They got. Um, yeah. They got. They got, they got, they added adventurers to their roster, and it just went in a certain direction after that. <laughs> Basically, Elminster took a look at them and says, "Ooh, I can do things with these people." <laughs> you know what? If I if I sharpen the these edges and then point them in you the know, right direction, I can you know, fuck up some shit. Fuck you, Zentrum. <laughs> you, <Yeah. know, laughs> you know, Elminster. Elminster is the explanation for a lot of things in Faerun, yep. including several variations of half breeds. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Alminster looked at it and said, I bet I could fuck that. <laughs> and that's how we got Ganassi. <laughs> I wish I could disagree with you. <laughs> Alminster looked at a fire elemental and said, I bet I could fuck that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know and, what? And you know what? Sad. He was right. Elminster is the Zeus of Faerun. (laughs) The saddest part about it is that... Everything was great that day. Unfortunately, (laughs) Elminster was... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can argue that there are several several people of various races within within that universe who, who directly contradict with Elminster... I cannot argue the point that conceivably he went back in time and was the ultimate <laughs> forefather. <laughs> because fucking Elminster. <laughs> Elminster, Elminster, is, Elminster is the old man I want to be. <laughs> Elminster is the old man we're all afraid you're going to be. Yes. <laughs> Hey, look, the next organization is the Myriad. The Myriad, the Wild Mouse organized crime ring, is now becoming known throughout Tal'Dorei. Um, The Myriad, basically, yeah, no, I think the the, the previous uh, analogy is correct, where the Clasp is the Mafia, the Myriad, actually, actually, I think it's backwards. The Clasp is the Yakuza, and the Myriad is the Mafia. 
Yeah, the clasp is the um, triads. Because, yeah. the, the, because no, fair. the clasp has a much more communal, like, we are a group of people doing things feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, a much more personal feel, where, whereas the, the myriad are the same thing, but they are intentionally anonymous and unknown. I mean, the myriad is basically... The myriad is basically there to give the 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 class shade of gray. The myriad is sort of like the um well, we've got the class they're established they're an important crime organization, but we need something worse than the class i guess the, I guess the myriad are also like sort of the illuminati slavers right. and assassins and the black and not that the class doesn't do some of that. But, but everything that talks about the myriad talks about it in a way like the class is bad, but but at least they're not the myriad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so next after them is the remnants, the cult of the whispered one. And if you thought the myriad were bad, let's look at the remnants. In the time long past, a powerful archmage known as the Whispered One attempted to ascend to godhood by conducting the ritual of seeding from high atop the citadel of Tharampala in the realm of shadow. The Whispered One surrounded himself with a cult of fanatical mages. The Whispered One surrounded himself with a cult of fanatical mages and empowered murderers to protect him during his ritual of of how do you pronounce that word? Apotheosis. Apotheosis. I know uh, that because I went to Bible college. God yet damn it. the cult was shattered and the Whispered One defeated at the hands of the Osvarda and the Army of the Just. Defeated and ruined and their Whispered One destroyed. The cult seemingly vanished from the world. However, even in apparent death, this dark mage left instructions with his most devout, allowing for the possibility of his defeat and the promise of rebirth. Show me so, the body. You gotta just, show me the body. Even then, you gotta, and, fuck, and you gotta then. fuck the body into oblivion before you know it's gone. Easy there, Elminster. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so so yeah, this is the cult of Vecna. This is, and this is, but but more importantly, this is sort of a cookie cutter example of how you build a cult. Um, I feel like uh, the 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 remnants are less supposed to be a faction you're going to use as a game master in the in the in the realm of Tal'Dorei, and more an example with by which to follow. While you can use them certainly, and feel free to. Um, I feel like the more serves as a very good sort of starting ground because it design is design rubric. Yeah. Um, following them are the Wardens of Singorn, which are the least have the least amount of text of all of these of all the societies. The Elven city of Singorn was established in the Verdant Expanse by the sorcerer Yinlara, the Wood Elves' first leader after the Divergence. Today, the city of Singorn is safeguarded by three officers by three officers of elders called Wardens, united by the High Warden. These four keep the city and surrounding land safe from intrusion, period. That's it. Then they have their goals and, and major figures. <laughs> the, the, the Elves of Singorn are xenophobic and keep to themselves. And that's pretty much all we know about them. And that's the end of the organizations, which then goes yes. into chapter two, the Gazette, the Gazetteer of Taldore. So this uh, is where we get into kind of the human geography of of the setting, um, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the largest section of the book, which totally makes sense. Because um, they break it out by region, and then each of those regions has landmarks or towns or smaller areas or 
just large geographic features of note uh, with description, usually uh, a couple story hooks, some stats, especially on the uh, the various towns, cities, and settlements. Um, and a bit and, of the map. Yeah, and then, of course, a bit of the map. <clears throat> but it also comes with a huge fucking world map, and this is the part of the sequence we like to call Jack Goes Crazy Cartography Shit. <laughs> well, so. we like to is a strong term. <laughs> um, but the the PDF preview of book comes with a full color, gorgeous, uh, full page um, map of the entire realm of Taldore, where the book itself has it kind of sectioned out at the top of the uh, region headings. This one gives it to you one big image all together. Design is fantastic. Uh, I was a geography major, so that's why I get all hot and bothered about maps. Um, but just the way this is put together um, is phenomenally gorgeous. It's very different from a lot of the usual design that I've seen most setting books. Most of them tend toward a little more vector arty type stylings, um, which can be great because if, when you're wanting to quickly communicate basic geospatial da data to a viewer, uh, having a less detailed graphic can sometimes go a long way so that the bits of information you're trying to communicate are very easily pulled out. This one goes for a little more of an atmospheric, evocative, uh, it's got a very oil painting kind of feel to it. Uh, but it's still, they did a good job trying to, especially with the, the text, um, making sure they maintained a decent uh, contrast. Uh, figure ground is great. You can easily tell these are the land masses. Here are your mountains. Here are your forests. You know that sort of thing. Uh, but they they've got a fairly muted color scheme. It's very earth tonesy. Um, and the uh, the text also changes colors, uh, not entirely inconsistent, honestly. Um, but there is a little bit of variation depending on where the text falls, what the background of that particular text field is. Um, there's... It reminds me. It reminds yeah. me of the the colored maps you would get in old fantasy novels that were like sort of like just sort of added in and f would either would either be plastered across two pages or would fold out of the book. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's very much. Yeah, it I does. It probably... does very much have a have a fold out. You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a fold kind of in it. Yes. Like, yeah, there is. Um, and... into it. Yeah, and the the overall design of the map, like most people, even if you're not a scholar of maps, you'll recognize a National Geographic map when you see it because they have a very specific, <clears throat> consistent design that goes with it. It's always completely packed with text because everybody's hometown is on a National Geographic map, things like that. You know, mm -hmm. and a, a U.S. National Parks map definitely looks different than, you know, a standard uh, state uh, road map or uh, – road atlas or something like that you know but there's there's various conventions um and consistency in different types of maps this one is very artistic like i said before um some of the uh some of the areas text is a little harder to pick out um so you will have to zoom in or go to that actual region uh to figure out which thing that they're actually talking about if you can't pick it up uh just from the the large area but in terms of like a map that you would hang on your wall Oh God, yes! I need this thing framed and and possibly on the roof of my bedroom. Um, <laughs> just like yeah, it's amazing. I I could go on for hours about this map. Um, but, but you're yeah, not. You're... Okay, fine. I'll shut up. God. <laughs> you can finish up. 
Um, but yeah, but in terms of the last thing I would say is, yeah, use of color to communicate, uh, terrain is really well done. Mm -hmm. Um, like your swamps, your, your darker dead forests or ones that are choked by foul weather or magical curse, what have you, uh, they tend to be on the, the grayer side of things. Whereas your other forests, the ones that are a little more, lively while potentially still being just as dangerous you've got your deep greens there they've got a excellent uh continental spread for the the open grasslands um greener toward the western coast paler towards the eastern coast uh, and they describe a little bit about the uh the geography and why that is there but it's it's a very communicative via color rather than necessarily via imagery the mountain ranges look um, but they are very, very detailed, um, especially in terms of texture and things like that, which can make the text overlying them a little hard to read, but they've done a decent job with the, the black glow on the, the text design there so that it at least stands out as much as possible, uh, from, from the, the texturing and, and design that they've done as far as the, uh, the color and shading goes. Um, yep. uh, yeah, no, it's fantastic. You, if, if they've mentioned a location, in the game, you can probably find it on the map. Mm-hmm. And uh, as as another note, again, because I I love flavor in in anything that I that I look at, um, uh, the map very well could have just been a map of Taldori, but yes. in the lower right hand corner, yeah. they've 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 gone out of their way to make it look like a map you might actually buy from a shop in Iman, in the capital of Taldori, and in the lower right hand corner is a little box that says a new cartographical rep- reproduction of the most resplendent realm of Taldori and surrounds, as presented to the Council of Taldori at the request of Seeker Asum Emrig, taken from actual surveys conducted on travels by Tyriot Gadsworth, chief cartographer of the Guild of Beacons, eight twelve PD. Scale and miles, um, yep. and and it's just that that's a completely unnecessary touch for a campaign books map that I love. That is yeah. amazing, yeah, yeah. Um, and not just it, it should be said, not just this one map. There are also diff- a couple other maps in in uh with throughout the book. Uh, there's a map of Iman. There's a map of Whitestone, and yes. they have the same <laughs> level of of. Just stand out uh, uh, a design and look, um, and basically everything thing, that can be said applied there applies to them too. And the other thing I like about this is, uh, you know, like Matt said in his introduction, hopefully the of several books uh, to explain the the full scope mm-hmm. of Alexandria. But if you look at the borders of this yeah. full page map, uh, you know, top left it says northwest to the font of civilization. Um, on the the right hand side, eastward to deeper Wild Mount, because a little bit of Wild Mount bleeds through the map. Uh, in the bottom left and right, southwest to the Hespit Archipelago and Marquette, southeast to the Fool's Curtain and the Shattered Teeth. So it's like, yeah, this is this is a map, but they like any good like any good cartographer, Tyriac references where it is in relation to other known entities and elements in the world. I think it's nice that he included the D20 symbols all over the place too. I think that was a really, that was was really, that was really nice of him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So we're, we're, we're going to sort of glaze over the land masses of Tal'Dorei and let you peruse those more thoroughly because 
And there's a lot to it, and we want to get a little bit further into the mechanics before we get hit the two-hour mark here. Yeah, um, just in general, talking about because we um we touched on it before, but the 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 um uh, the plot hooks yes are fantastic. This is one of my favorite things, and again, referencing referencing in comparison. Uh, this is one of my favorite things, and one of the one of the things besides the overall setting that initially drew me to Eberron was that there was a lot of this in the initial campaign setting. It threw idea after idea after idea at you without requiring, without saying this is the way you need to do it, but just here's some hooks, here's some things that you might want to do. Yeah. Um, I think that this book takes it even one step further in terms of categorizing it out for the for the mid, for the high level, for the low level. Uh, there's a couple in here even that are just any level doesn't matter. It's it's appropriate for all of them. Um, so and it even like when you're looking through it, it will it'll bold out particular creature types and things like that, so you can very quickly determine what you want to do. So, we've got the Lucidian Coast, the Alabaster Sierras, the Dividing Plains, the Cliffkeep Mountains, the Stormcrest Mountains, the Riven Mist Peninsula, the Verdant Expanse, and then the distant regions of Exandria. And within those, the, so the looking at the map, the Lucidian Coast is sort of the, uh, east, or the, the east coast of, of, of Tal'Dorei. Um, the... Sorry... I'm looking at things. The Alabaster Sierras are the northern mount are, are sort of uh, part of the northern ma- mountains. Uh, so are the northeast mountains. The Cliffkeep Mountains are the true north and northwest mountains. Um, the Dividing Plain is sort of the central area. Um, the Midwest. This, yeah, the Midwest, I guess. Uh, the Verdant Expanse is the southern area, along with the Riven Mist Peninsula, which is sort of the southern half of the continent. Um, the Stormcrest Mountains are a are a mountain range that the the Stormcrest Mountains and the Storm Point Mountains are the are sort of the dividing line of the uh, of the north and south uh, Tal'Dorei. Um, which I think what else is there listed? Uh, yeah, and and so the 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 various distant regions of Exandria also include Wild Mount off to the east um, and. Uh, uh, Tzarim to the south, which we don't really know anything about. Um, and then we That's get so into then we get into uh, player class options as we go to character options. Uh, yep. So this we're just going to start from the top. Uh, the first thing that they add into here is the blood domain for clerics. Originally developed in Wild Mount by the Claret Orders, the Blood Domain centers around the understanding of the natural life force within one's physical body. The power of the blood is the power of sacrifice, the balance of life and death, and spirits anchor within the mortal shell. The gods of blood seek to tap into the connection between body and soul through divine means, exploit the hidden reserves of will within one's own vitality, and even manipulate or corrupt the body of others through these secret rites of crimson. Um, almost any neutral or a- or evil deity can claim some influence over the secrets of blood magic in this domain, while the gods who watch from more moral realms shun its use beyond extenuating circumstances. When casting divine spells as a blood domain cleric, consider, all wa- consider uh, ways to occasionally flavor your descriptions to tailor the magic's effect on the opponent's blood and vitality. Whole person might involve locking a target's body in place from the bloodstream out, preventing them from moving. Cure wounds may feature the controlling of blood like a needle and thread to close lacerations. Guardian of Faith could be a floating crimson spirit of dripping viscera who watches the vicinity with burning red eyes. 
the blood domain spells are for first levels. I mean, and ray of sickness. So I don't know if we should actually list out everything in there because that's probably because go buy the book. (laughs) Then there's no need to buy the book. Yeah, go buy the book. Uh, So the blood domain, the the blood domain focuses on a very visceral experience for clerics, making them really get. they sort of really sort of want to get into combat. They make them more yeah. aggressively focused than other cleric domains typically do. Um, doing things like, you know, increasing damage of your necrotic spells by a mm-hmm. good amount. Um, you know, letting you manipulate people, uh, like, like physically control, control their movements with uh, certain abilities. And, um, at the same time, being able to gain information about creatures via their blood. Yeah, it, it's it, it's a very interesting um, turn of events, or, or a turn on the turn on the traditional cleric style of gameplay. I mean, it's instantly become one of my favorite domains. Um, I really like the it, it's. So when you're designing. It, clerical domains it's very easy to overlap with others and then it starts to get into the point of well you're essentially just creating the life domain but slightly just slightly tweaked or you're just doing another battle priest which is just the war domain like why why even bother necessarily this is something that's completely there, there are battle elements, and there are. It sort of fits, doesn't quite fit in any of the particular niches that that fifth edition has so far within its established domains. Um, and it provides sort of a more combative counterpart to the death cleric without being necessarily evil. I mean, it's certainly yeah. sinister, but it's not... You could be a blood cleric and still, you know, be neutral or or um, yeah. even lean towards good a little bit. Hmm? Um, I think that mechanically it's very balanced. Um, yeah, as it's far as powerful. alignments go, I think... I think, I think the blood cleric falls quite easily into the N to SG, which is what I call sketchy good. Yes. Um, right. <laughs> Area yes. of things. Yes. Um, um, yeah. Mechanically it's balanced. It's powerful, but it's balanced. Yeah. Uh, next up is the path of the juggernaut for barbarians. When the herd of storms led their terrible raids across the continent under the leadership of Kevdak, tales spread of their bloodlust, brutality, and nigh unstoppable strength. Walls crumbled and legions fell to but a handful of fearsome warriors as they cut a path for the herd to charge in and take what they wished before vanishing back into the dividing plains. Uh, the path of the juggernaut really focuses on making you a battering ram to push forward. I mean, it focuses on being the juggernaut, bitch. I mean, basically, yep. yeah. Like the the, the, <laughs> the other other paths of the barbarian, the the barbar- the berserker barbarian is all about reducing the amount of damage you take and increasing the amount of damage you deal. The path of the the, the to- animal totem barbarian gives you unique magical effects that let you maneuver easier around the battlefield, or give bonuses to your allies, or just be as tough as a bear. This one is about moving forward and never stopping. Yeah, yeah, just in 
completely unstoppable. Yeah. Like, and, and not, not unstoppable as in destroys everything in your path, but unstoppable no. as if, as in there's no wall that can hold you back. Yep. Um, which I, I, I think is very, it's sort of a very interesting way to go with it. It literally turns your barbarian yeah, into this a is, this is a, this is a, this is an Anna charge on a Winston ultimate. This is, that's what this is. <laughs> For those of you that yeah. watch. Legit. Um, so yeah, uh, next up is my personal favorite. Mine too. Uh, I'm not surprised. For Sorcerer's Origin for Sorcerers. Um, the weave and flow of magic is mysterious and feared by many across Exandria. Many study the nature of, it, of the arcane in hopes of learning to harness it, while sorcerers carry innate talent to sculpt and wield the errant strands of power that shape the world. Some sorcerers occasionally find their body itself becomes a conduit for such energies, their flesh collecting and storing remnants of their magic in the form of natural runes. These anomalies are known in erudite circles as rune children. So the rune child origin basically alters the way you function on a very, on a very, it, it alters the way sorcerers want to play the game. Um, so sorcerers in general universally have uh, sorcerer points, which they can use to manipulate how they use magic. And it's sort of, Typically, it's sort of a, a secondary aspect of your character, um, with your sorcerer's origin being the primary aspect. And so your, mm-hmm. your sorcerer points are in service to your origin, and you use those two things in, in, in sort of conjunction to do whatever it is you want. Dragons, you know, dragon, dragon blood sorcerers focus on elemental damage and elemental output and use their sorcerer points to regain their elemental powers and, and unleash more of that fury. Um, chaos sorcerers uh, want to make random and potentially beneficial effects happen and use their sorcerer points to try to uh, to try to recoup as many as many spins on the chaos wheels they can possibly get. <laughs> or you um, know, cast a fireball on themselves. Yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, Rune child sorcerers just want to magically ruin. Yeah, Rune child sorcerers. <laughs> Use their sorcerer points to invest in their innate abilities because their runes play off. Their runes play off sorts the use of sorcerer points. They actually their power references sorcerer points and get better the more you use them. Um, and so they fundamentally change the way a sorcerer looks at their character sheet. And I like that as a class yeah. option. Mm-hmm. No, it's a good, it's definitely a good one. It's and again, it's a it's. It, it is a very, very uh, well-known archetype, the the the, the magical tattoo warrior, yep. um, but it's done really, really well. Well, and to to be clear, it's not actually a magical tattoo warrior. The um, no, no, I'm talking about in spirit. It's not yeah, yeah, literally in, that. Yeah, um, because they don't. They're 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 actually very fragile. <laughs> yes, until level eighteen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> up to that point they're very fragile uh well i mean like no because their glyphs of aegis give them a very strong defensive option at a very early level uh but but, but that's getting into mechanics and details theoretically but theoretically. when compared against other things that other uh, origins that just give them yeah a- boost to their defense to their ac mm-hmm. it's not as good like it like they, they are they, they are not as good defensively as a dragon blood sorcerer no, they're or not. a stone sorcery sorcerer no it just it, it it clearly draws inspiration from the magical tattoo warrior um yeah. but does it in but 
as most of this book does, takes that that thing that people are instantly going to know and will like, okay, I know what this is, and resituate it or uh, that word into it. yes into a different setting in a new interesting way. Uh, and uh, it's definitely my favorite of the of the the new classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the next is the way of the cobalt soul um, uh, for monks, <laughs> which is, I mean, it because there are four of them, and because one is my most favorite. This is probably my least favorite. Not that it's bad. It's my but, second favorite, actually. Uh, it it doesn't it doesn't do it for me. But uh, the way of the cobalt War- soul. I, I got a thing for warrior scholars because yes. I'm definitely the second part without being the first. Uh, driven by the pursuit of knowledge and their worship of the Knowing Mistress, the Monastery of the Cobalt Soul, known to, known as the Library of the Cobalt Reserve, stands as one of the most well-respected and most heavily guarded repository of tomes, history, and information across Exandria. Here, young people seeking the clarity of truth and the strength of knowledge pledge to learn the arts of seeking enlightenment by understanding the world around them and mastering the techniques to defend it. To become a Cobalt Soul is to give oneself to the quest of unveiling life's mysteries, bringing light to the secrets of the dark, and guarding the most powerful and dangerous truths from those who would seek to pervert the sanctity of civilization. Um, and well, Jack, it's your favorite, so go ahead and explain the essence of the Cobalt Soul. Uh, the Cobalt Soul is is a is a scholarly monk, um, you know, because monks tend to be um, highly defensive, uh, have have very strong personal defenses while exhibiting a great amount of offensive capability, depending on what they choose to do in combat. Um, co- the Cobalt Soul path is interesting to me because it allows them to it allows a monk to use their supernatural ability also learn things these if you want to play a tactician monk this could be one of your best choices honestly in my in my opinion um because instead of making most of your defenses most of your abilities physical they've got a very strong amount of mental options uh being able to learn things about your your enemy by spending key points being able to just learn things in general uh by spending key points giving yourself advantage on knowledge checks uh increasing your your mental defenses uh allowing you to to take advantage of your foe's actions in order to counterattack and things like that there's some very very cool stuff here plus the ability extort truth which is basically gives you the mechanics of how to beat information out of people Yep. There are, personally, I like it. This is the one of the four class options that are in the book. And it should be mentioned, it is specifically noted, obviously, that, that Blood Hunter, Gunsmith, and uh, uh, the Bard College that I can't remember, uh, College of the Maestro, are obviously Taldore options, but are available on dmsguild.com for legal reasons yes um this is the first this is the only one of the four where i think it could have it it might be unbalanced um (laughs) and that sets that's what sets me off about it like if you look at if you look at the abilities that 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 the cobalt so i love it thematically and I love what the abilities allow you to do thematically. But if you look at the abilities in comparison to the other monk archetypes at the same level, 
um, it's dramatically more powerful, uh, particularly on the, the mid-level stuff. Yeah. And I feel like this is probably the one that's had the least amount of playtesting mm-hmm. of the four. Um, there haven't been a whole lot of monks in the Critical Role campaign, and those that have were definitely not Cobalt Souls. Right. Um, so I don't know that this has ever been tested in sort of like against other monk classes, potentially. Um, and it just, it, and, and, it feels like it's trying to do a lot and a lot more than what other monk classes do. And that's probably mm-hmm. why it's my least favorite. It's just, it doesn't, it feels like aspects of it doesn't know what it wants to be because it like, and like it sets it up at the top as being sort of a, you know, it's a, you know, this is a intellectual version of the monk. They use their mind more than their, more than other as more than other types of monks do. They, they research and they study and they, but then at 11, at 11th level, they just get a counterattack. Like that, nothing in their, in, in, in one of their, uh, in that particular ability reads as thematically appropriate to the order. It just it's like, oh, it needs a combat thing here. So here's Did you a read the first thing. sentence? Yes, that, that is the explanation for it, but the ability by itself still doesn't feel thematically Oh, yeah, no. It, it, the ability requires some explanation as to why I think they put it in there, but I would say with the explanation, it does make sense. I think, yeah, I, I think it's okay thematically. I just... I think there could have been something again better. without going too far in. I feel like six and level six and level eleven combined to be ridiculously broken. Oh, that could very well be ridiculously broken. Yes. Um, oh, no, no, most definitely because then you're just yeah people in the face all day, um, <laughs> all day every day. Yeah, um, it's fun. I mean, like I'm gonna be I. It's not the fault of the uh, of the archetype, but Path of the Juggernaut is my least favorite because I literally cannot get past, past the fact that it's almost sort of a joke archetype. <laughs> it feels highly referential. It feels very, very referential to the point of even including Unstoppable in the highest level ability. That can't be a coincidence. Um, so, so I have a problem getting past that. But What's your least favorite, Jack? I would say Path is a Juggernaut as well. I'm just not a huge barbarian guy, which is probably why. But, hmm. um, yeah. I would say Runechild is my favorite, Cobalt Soul second, Blood, Cleric, and Domain, and then Path of the Juggernaut. I actually and, really like Juggernaut. I actually really like the Juggernaut, but... I mean, I I, I I just like the concept of that, that, that you're a Reinhardt main. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The <laughs> well, it, it it is it is very much a one trick pony thing, but that's pretty much what the barbarians are universally. Um. Anyways, moving on to the backgrounds. Uh, so we have class member. Uh, uh, basically, when you when you start as a member of the class, it's sort of an upgraded version of the criminal class from the from the mm-hmm. core book. 
Um, they have a they have a little bit more in the way of options for skill proficiencies and tool proficiencies. Um, they also automatically learn the thieves can't as opposed to having to be a rogue for it, which I find it, I, I appreciate that. I love that. Um, I appreciate love that in, in particular because it gets that language into the hands of people other than rogues. Yes. Which theoretically, anybody could learn it, but in the core book, it's sort of locked down to rogues. Um, I like that. And uh, their feature is their, their feature is a is a feature we've seen before, just reworked. Um, you can ask a favor, basically. Yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. you have connections in the city. Yep. Um, Moving on to, and their variant is the Myriad Operative, which is the same thing, but for the Myriad. Um, next is the Lyceum Student. Uh, this is this this I feel the closest the closest comparison to this would be the um, the Acolyte, but for Arcane Magic instead of Clerics. Yeah, in in my mind, um, Acolyte or Sage or Sage. Yeah, mm-hmm. I feel like it's. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, there there is some sage equivalency over there, but it definitely yeah. it, even in suggested characteristic, it's background in the player's handbook. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The Ashari, uh, you're you're from the Druid people, right? Um, <clears throat> they theirs is actually um, their feature is one of the more interesting ones mm-hmm. in that it actually gives you a mechanical thing you you can do that's not a role-playing thing most most uh, background features are role-playing things um yeah. that they have some mechanical aspect to it but when it comes down to it, it's you doing a thing in character in the world in this one depending on your uh depending on your background you get a you effectively learn the Preston Education cantrip, even if you're not a class that gets access to spells. In a very limited way. In very, very limited, limited fashion. Like yeah, it's it not. It's definitely not the prestigitation spell no. in a whole. Um, yeah. Which is why I think it works because huh. it's, it's not. Fun. Yeah. It's just interesting. Yeah. Um, recovered cultist, uh, basically a recovered cultist is someone who did worship an evil god and does no longer, theoretically, maybe. Um, That's my background. I used to be a fundamentalist, and then I moved out. Um, they, they sort of, their, their feature basically lets them know a little bit more about the wicked ways of evil people, Mm -hmm. because they're totally not still one, obviously. Um, (laughs) uh, and then fate touched. Fate touched. You get luck for free. Only one point. Luck for, but you do get one point of luck. And this, if you already take, if you take the luck feed, it adds to it. Yeah, yeah. This is inter- This is an interesting one because, as it specifically says, players are not intended to select this background. No, right. This is the first time that I have ever seen this on a background. This is a background that the game master can assign to you. Yes. Um, which is, it's an interesting concept, and it's the kind of thing that I love. So, I am going to call bullshit on provides a very minor mechanical benefit. That is not a minor mechanical oh, benefit. Oh, no, no. This one is not a minor mechanical benefit. That's a fucking luck point. That is a um, lie in the text. <laughs> yes. Like, no, that is that is a significant... Although, although and Fate if, Touch does not come with any skill proficiencies, tool proficiencies, languages, 
or equipment. Well, no, because assumedly, if you've created the, if you've created a character, you've already. This is a second background. You're yeah, right. this is this is because meant to be supplemental. Yeah, this is meant to be supplemental to a previous background. Yeah. It's not meant to be your only background. This is basically the DM saying, "Have a lot of point." And in my opinion, in my opinion, what I would do with this is I would not tell your player that they have this mm. as a game master. I would instead, when it seems thematically appropriate, would say, "We roll that die and take the best one of your rolls." Right. Like I would, I would, I as a game yeah. master, I would take that one luck point into my hand for the player, mostly because I I, I think that that plays to what it is a little bit more. It's less, it's less you controlling your fate, and more your fate is being manipulated externally. That's sort of what it in what the what the background describes, but mechanically it's you manipulating your fate. Which well you know, I mean that's, not, that's my that's, that's just that's a whole philosophical debate within narrative about fate and how fate empowers a character and it's true. It's true. Which 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 again is a whole it could fill an entire episode. But I would definitely I like the way first of all I really like the fact that that this is sort of a a bold move um for a background because conceivably like I could see a lot of people complaining that this was unbalanced it gives the dm a per, uh, a chance to reward their favorite character etc yeah but I really like the way that it works out and I like the idea of exactly as it says consider for a character who would benefit from being put more central to the coming conflicts or an NPC who could require the the protection as they come into their destiny. So right. when I see that, uh, my interpretation of, I know that a lot of people interpret that as pick this on the person you want to be the star of your game. I look at it as look, put this, first of all, I don't think this is a permanent background necessarily. No. I could see this very much as a temporary background where let's say you're coming up on a on a part where one of your players who has not really been the focus of the storyline up to a, up to a certain point is about to become more significant to the storyline it provides them with almost literally a certain amount of plot armor yeah um and allows that character to sort of you know you know step up and become become the focus of their own arc in, in 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 an interesting way, um, I think there's a lot of benefit in that. And then after that particular you know moment of being touched by fate recedes, you no longer have that background. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot of potential there. Uh, we've been recording for almost two hours now, so we're going to speed up a little bit. Okay, <laughs> finish this up. Just because we got feats coming up, we tend to talk a lot. Um, yes. So uh, we have new feats available. Uh, they are they, they have a wide. We're not going to go into detail about them obviously because no. go mm-hmm. by the book because they're awesome. But um, they, they 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 have a wide range of things. Uh, most of so, so some of them are role-playing focused. Some of them mm-hmm. are mechanical bonuses and one of them is broken. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would argue that there are a few that are twitchy. 
There are a few that are but, twitchy. One of them is flat broken, and you know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, I is do know which one? ones you're talking about. No, it is the third one. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh, oh, that one. Okay, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Without getting it, without getting into detail of what uh, flash recall is broken. Flash recall is flat broken. Is ridiculously broken. Uh, but especially since it favors divine divine spellcasters way more than arcane ones. But um, I feel like there are a few in here. I feel like the the weakest part of the book. Um, now, this comes from someone who, as, as John knows quite well, is tends to be very cautious on feats as a whole. Um, but I feel like this part could have gone through. There's a lot of good stuff in terms of narrative interest and and filling filling spots within the game that don't have uh, uh, things necessarily done there. But I do think these could have been playtested a little bit more and tweaked a little bit. It's not my favorite part of the book. No, it, it certainly is. This is, uh, of all the things that needed to be playtested, I think these needed to be playtested a bit more. Yeah. Two is also very approach is the, broken. The, the last broken. one is also very approachable. Oh yeah, broken. no, that one is also <laughs> broken. And I want it. Yes, I know. <laughs> I am aware you asked me if I would allow it. <laughs> uh, so the next part of the book is the uh, the Vestiges of Divergence. So again, spoiler warning right here. Yes. Um, and we're not going to talk about any of the specific vestiges, but what I do want to talk about is how the vestiges work. Specifically, yeah. the advanced basic the mechanics. Because this is something that, even if you're not going to buy the book, this is something that, as most people that that watch Kirk Roll are interested in knowing. And and this is something that I find particularly fascinating as an idea, as a concept for legendary items. Mm-hmm. Um. So, first of all, all vestiges are legendary weapons. All are, are legendary items of some kind, and they have uh, three different stages. They have their normal stage, the awakened stage, and the exalted stage. Uh, the condition in which a vestige of divergence pr- progresses to the next stage of capability can vary and many times revolve around the nature of the vestige and its enchantment. Many times the attuned bearer must themselves symbolically progress to a new state of self-discovery or accomplishment. Other times the artifact will respond to a moment of extreme personal duress or desperation. These triggering moments are entirely up to the DM to identify and enforce and many times may manifest in ways you had not expected. Allow the organic narrative uh, moments you feel may exemplify such an advancement to occur and tailor your triggering moment accordingly. Some examples may include a character finally surmounts one of their greatest fears, bravely facing an otherwise crippling phobia to save a party member. A character is beaten within an inch of their life by a long-headed foe. In the face of such defeat, they feel a deep, dormant strength grow from within. A character loses a close ally in battle and their anguish and fury stirs the power within the vestige. Uh, that's a grammatical typo, by the way, because it says, and the... Anguish and fury should be there. Anguish and fury. Anyways, well, yeah, um, there's, there are. It should be said we are reviewing. Uh, at the point that we are recording this, the book has been out for as 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 the PDF pre. You know, we got it when we when when we pre-ordered for three days. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, and they have two Green Ronin's credit. Went on the re- went on the Reddit. They're in the critical role Reddit and said, "Hey, we know that there are going to be there are going to be uh, uh, some typos in there. Hopefully, not many. Let us know what they are." Yep. 
Um, and they are hoping to get all of those fixed by the time that it comes out. So, uh, to, to continue, uh, character, a character loses, sorry, that was a, a character discovers a facet of their destiny that guides them towards a dangerous cause. And against their fears, they accept their fate and responsibility. A character gains vengeance against a rival who has tormented them for ages. A character known for restraint gives in to the amoral, violent urges that the artifact was forged in. Uh, generally, a vestige will remain dormant between the levels of 1 and 8, become awakened between the levels of 9 and 15, and achieve exalted status between the levels of 16 and 20. However, the moment of advancement ultimately lies within the preference of the DM and when the appropriate moment presents itself. So, the concept of a weapon that maybe isn't sentient, but evolves as your character evolves has interesting implications and let it be known this doesn't necessarily have to be a vestige of divergent other magical weapons could theoretically have this same sort of advancement that you're creating for your own campaign or your own systems um what do you guys think about a weapon that sort of advances as you emotionally proceed i have a Adored the concept because the problem with, as I've seen it, the problem with uh, things where you're constantly switching in and out your gear is that it doesn't give you consistency. You know, it's, but like when you think of famous fictional and mythological uh, characters that we're all familiar with, King Arthur, um, Thor, you know, things like that, they have a signature weapon, mm-hmm. you know, or a signature set of armor or something like that. They are known for having this item affiliated with this individual. Now, in a game where there's power creep, frequently you get a weapon and you use it until you find something better, at which point you either sell it, throw it away, do something, you know, whatever, give it to somebody else, uh, you know. But having a character that literally has an object that stays with them and becomes part of their almost identity... Um, throughout all of their, or the majority of their adventures. I love the sort of iconic nature of something like that. Yeah. I mean, I love giving, I love, uh, yeah, giving players a signature weapon or giving players something. And that's difficult to do in, in uh, a D and D sometimes because of power creep and, 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 and power level and et cetera. If you want to give somebody something that's going to stick with them for a while, you have to make it an artifact and that's a problem um, because artifacts are ridiculously powerful. Yeah. Um, so the idea of, yeah, those weapons that level up, um, I had, which was weird because I honestly had never seen it in, in D and D despite how long I've been doing it. Until about when WoW started introducing uh, legacy weapons. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, is, and that was sort of where... gave wizards the clue. Yeah. I think. Somebody yeah. will correct me on that, I'm sure. I'm and sure like, they well, came yeah, up because like that. back in back in three and a half and three point five and four E, they occasionally had like these super freaking powerful sentient artifact weapons that the more it liked you, the better it got. But yeah, but, but that that's... was really as close as it, it came. Yeah, you know, it wasn't something that necessarily advanced as you advanced. It was more something that advanced as you willing to subsume your character to its agenda, which Correct. kind of kind of felt a little disjointed, you know. But yeah, I love having the idea of the there are there's gear, and not all vestiges are weapons, obviously. There's, right, you know, necklaces and 
head slot items and shit, you know, but like, and as much as we shit on Drizzo Erden, you know, I mean, when you say two scimitars and a panther, I mean, everybody knows who you're talking yep. about, you know, Twinkle, Ice, yeah. and Beth, and Guinevar, um, you know, and, and having those iconic elements to a character gives it an impact to the point where, I mean, like, yeah, if I was, if I was playing in a long running campaign and I walked into a town and nobody knew who I was until I pulled out my dagger and then everybody knew who I was. I mean, that would be a fucking incredible feeling as a player um, to realize just how recognizable this thing is because of what I've done with it over the past months of play, you know? Yep. Yeah. And it's, it, and it's, it, it, it gives you, I think you're exactly right. It's that this is the iconic thing about that character. You know, Captain America has a shield. Green Lantern yes. has a ring. Thor has a hammer. King Arthur has Excalibur. Like, like legendary heroes and legendary characters all have a thing associated with them. And even going further back, Lord of the Rings, um, like, like Aragorn. Aragorn has his Andoril, sword. Yeah. Andoril. Sting is a weapon. Uh, 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 what's the name of the, the other one that they found? Uh, um, Gandalf has it. The... Uh, uh, Glamdring? Glamdring. Glamdring, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like Glamdring the Foe Hammer, I believe. Yeah. Um, like, these, these, these iconic, iconic weapons, Typically, if you want to have that level of power, it has to be a super powerful item, and you can't really give that to someone early on. But the concept of this evolving item is you could give somebody the magical dagger that gives them a plus, you know, that gives them a plus one uh, to attack and damage and makes them frightened of you when you hit them with it. Uh, And yeah, that's okay, but then if they keep using it and they keep using it later on, it evolves into, oh, and now it's, it's this weapon is suddenly changed physically. And now it's a plus two weapon and it does other things. And mm-hmm. um, like evolving the item as it's used, I think is something that should happen more often and not just with, I, 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 I if you knew guys a hint for a future campaign, I intend to have other items that do things like that in future games that I run uh, in my personal worlds. And it's not necessarily going to be something that is like super powerful. Like a vestige is, you know, it it might just be a ring that gives you plus one for protection. And then later on it, it it gives you also the ability to turn invisible later on, you know, like, like something minor that's not going to be game breaking or massive or legendary something you might still trade out later on for a better item, but it still gives you an incentive to sort of cultivate this item and to cultivate your character because these items grow based on you. Right. So. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I have absolutely uh, uh, plans in Eberron to introduce vestige type items because I, I have no, no shame about Stealing Matt Mercer's ideas. Um, <laughs> That's the point of having I mean, people having good ideas. I yes. can steal them. Right. Blood of Vol clerics are now going to be not just death clerics, but blood clerics. Um, and and well, I will be getting into them in a second, but the alternative rules I love. Um, so this is one of those things that he's done in this book and in, you know, 
critical role as a whole, that I love the ideal of the vestiges, and I am shamelessly stealing it. Yep, and, and you know it's it's a really great idea, and and I I I kind of had this a similar idea with, and it was what well, you touched on earlier with World of Warcraft with their yeah. artifacts mm-hmm. that grow with you. That concept has been around before. I I know I've played other games with it, but World of Warcraft yes. was the first one to sort of crystallize that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and I have shamelessly stolen it from World of Warcraft, and then you know later on because it came before I did my thing. Obviously, you know there's some bleed over here with the vestiges. Um, uh, so, anyways, uh, the final thing we're going to cover because we're, we're not we're not going to cover the adversary, the allies, and adversaries. Right. It's entirely just stat blocks of enemies. Um, but they won't hear about my stabby stabbers campaign if we don't cover. No, I mean they'll hear about when you start it. Your stabby stabbers are not getting vestiges. Sorry. No. Well. well Yes, they. Have. I don't need a vestige. Um, I stab a lot. <laughs> I stab and stab. Anyways, so there are a few optional uh, campaign rules and guidelines that have been included with this. And the first one is uh, c- combat with larger parties. Key. Um, and uh, so, for options for uh, adjusting the co- the action economy when you have a party size of six or more, basically. Uh, one of them is uh, rapid quaffing, basically assigning, letting people drink a potion with a bonus action instead of a full round action. Uh, Multi spell at eight level, at, at a certain point, letting people uh, cast more spells in a single round than they would normally be able to. Um, things that sort of speed up combat that are optional rules that have been used in Critical Role that aren't actually in the book, although some of us apparently thought they were. Um, or forgot they weren't. I guess would be a better statement to make. Um, <laughs> and uh, things just that these are strictly designed to make combat faster. And I think a lot of people have adopted them since seeing them or since being exposed to them. And yeah. and they're actually like these are just house rules that people have probably been using for a long time and just got sort of canonized uh, through the crucible of critical role. Um. The idea of, as actually, as a matter of fact, I know in, in 3.5, when, when we played 3.5 in Pathfinder, we had, we sped up certain actions that didn't make sense that they took a whole turn to do. Things like yeah. drinking a potion or, or dropping a weapon or things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, additional rules are for accelerated downtime, giving adventurers, uh, so basically the, the idea behind this one is that um, when you stop to rest, it slows everything down. And so he has included a rule. Uh, he has he has included a couple of rules for speeding up the downtime. Um, <clears throat> and um, then after that, the big one is the alternative resurrection rules. Uh, yep, which so, are expanded from what we know. Yeah, yeah. So Matt Mercer has never been shy on the fact that he wants death to actually carry weight and cost and risk to it beyond just, well, we need 10,000 golden diamonds. Okay, he's back. And at the same time, he is he has always shied away from turning people into flesh golems made of their family. So he found an alternate way to go about it. <laughs> yes, he has. Um, yes. And I really like... Uh, so... Just come in on the resurrection, the the how it works in critical role. I really like how it's how, how it plays out, and I also enjoy 
some of the additions that he's added um, uh, in terms of, of the alternatives here. Not to get too much into them, but they didn't come back right is amazing. Yes. They didn't come um, back which right basically, w- without getting into the mechanics, when you come back, there is a chance that you will come back not right in the head. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that thematic sort of monkey's paw-esque. You have seen the other side. You have passed beyond the veil. Um, you have done say, and you have come back, which mankind was not intended to do, even in a world of gods and that magic and shit. Yeah. 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 If you don't have a particularly strong connection to your deity, as wisdom tends to be, then you're going to come back a little twitchy. Mm-hmm. Yep. The one that they use in Critical Role is the Fading Spirit, which is yes. like, which is largely the same as it was when he released his alternate re- uh, resurrection rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, which, you know, if you have access to those, you can read those. It's basically just that the fact that there's a resurrection challenge, you don't just cast the spell and do it unless you're using true resurrection or wish. Yeah. Um, it does clarify the revivify combat option of it, though, which was sort of quick had never been flat out stated, but I think most people knew had figured out what it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, and that's the that's pretty much it mechanic for for mechanically and for for the big things we wanted to cover in yep. mm-hmm. the um in, in the Taldori campaign setting. So let's really quickly we'll just go around uh and talk about things that we liked about it, things we didn't like about it. You know, sort of trying to keep those to concise points, and then mm-hmm. your sort of final opinion on it. Starting with Jack. Okay, uh, things I liked about it. Obviously, the map. The map is gorgeous. Um, and the entire gazetteer section does a fantastic job of giving you just enough uh, to establish the themes of each region and its sublocations without giving you so much that you don't feel like you can dovetail your own story in. Um, There's plenty of good options. I love all the options for play mechanics that are put in there. Uh, As far as things that I didn't like, um, personally, I would have loved a little bit more detail into the history, um, and hopefully we'll get that in in ensuing books. some of the feats and uh, other things like we talked about could probably uh, benefit from some established playtesting. And, uh, but yeah, overall, I give it nine problematic gnome bards out of ten. <laughs> Jeremy. Um, so the things I liked, like I said before, I, when I was looking at the book, I was looking at it in those three ways, Cam- uh, campaign setting for people who aren't critters, campaign setting for people who are critters, and just as a, a, a an expansion of material for critters who are not interested necessarily in, in, in running a Taldori campaign. I think this book strengthens it serves all three of those masters very well without alienating any, any of them. Um, for the most part, um, the, the, the setting material is really good. It provides a, it provides a lot of great adventure hooks. I, I love the, the player class backgrounds, um, uh, or the player class options and the backgrounds. Um, I enjoy what he did with in terms of taking what's familiar and 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 giving it its unique spin. So it's still something that if you know nothing about Critical Role, you can come into this book and say, 
okay, this is a familiar setting to me, but it's not just a ripoff of Faerun or of, of Kryn or wherever. Um, uh, on the other hand, I think this is mostly nitpickings, but I do think that that, that the feats are, are fairly unbalanced. And I feel like this is almost almost flies in the face of what I just said about serving multiple masters. But there is, understandably, a, a lot of focus on what Vox Machina does within the within the text. We didn't really touch on this a lot because that's spoilery, but it almost tries to go out of its way a couple of times to 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 point those out. Which is great for one of those three, a little less for the other ones, because it, I don't know, it just tweaked me a little bit wrong. Um, I would give it, uh, I'd say like eight and a half, nine uh, out of ten if we were doing a ten point scale or a B plus. I normally do a letter grade, but yeah, B plus, high B plus, low A minus, but leaning more towards the B plus. Um, so for me, I, I, I definitely enjoy, I like the character options, the mechanical stuff at the end of the book, at the latter half of the book. Um, I really like how all of the bits and pieces are very flavorful to each other and have those, the things that I talked about, the, the, you know, the, 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 mm-hmm. the scripture for the platinum dragons, the bit of rhyming couplets for the clasp and the little bit of, uh, prayer for the, the, the claret orders. Um, I like the, I, I always like class options. I always like giving players more things to do um uh, the feats uh, you know feats some of them i like some of them i don't like um but i i and, I, and then of course the con the whole concept of the vestiges of the of the virgins and the sort of the the blueprint for making your own um i i i like that um, I like how succinct and accurate are or, or succinct and like sort of very finely worded and very kept at a good pace. All the God details were the thing that I didn't like the most about this, this campaign guide. And that's just a problem that I have with most campaign guides was that it spent a long time detailing out every little bit of detail about the creation and backstory and existence of the world, which is a good thing for a campaign guide. But for me looking for extra material for, 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 you know, for me looking at it as a, as a campaign guide with additional aspects to it, I felt like they spent, like if you compare the percentage total of time they spent on building the world and then detailing the continents and then compare that to actually talking about the societies within those continents and the gods of the world, there's a massive leaning to one side. The book is mostly how the world was made and what there is to see and do. And then very, and then very slightly. Oh yeah, here are the gods. Here are the organizations, and here are some of the things you can do. Like, like here are some of the things you can do as a player, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Just from my particular taste, I would have liked it if it was leaned the other way. Um, but like, overall, still a really good book. I, f- I feel like it's definitely worth worth your money to pick up. I I agree with Jeremy. It's like it's a B plus, you know, B plus A minus range. Um. So yeah, that's the Critical Role Taldori campaign setting. Any 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 final thoughts from the two of you? 
Um, stabby stabbers are the coolest things ever. <laughs> stabby stabbers are, are pretty great. Uh, blood clerics for fucking life. I just love them so much. Yep. Alright. Well, so yeah, so that has been this has been the end of our special episode of the Tandori campaign sighting. It's this is a much longer episode than we normally record. We apologize for that, but there's a lot I more stuff no to talk about. I was so. going to say, you might apologize for it. I'm not we, going to. We've gone almost three hours. I'm apologizing for that. <laughs> I regret nothing. All right. Well, we have been Final Show Films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out on our website at FinalShowFilms.com. You can check us out on our Patreon page at Patreon.com slash FSFilms. If you want to support us financially, you can do so on our Patreon page. Uh, we appreciate all of our Patreon supporters, especially our $25 tier supporters, Chris Comfort, Antitonic, and Cat Waterflame, uh, without whom we would do quite as much of the stuff that we do already. Uh, so, yeah. We also appreciate the folks over at 411mania.com. Jeremy, tell the folks about 411mania.com. Uh, 411mania.com is a pop culture site that caters to everything that geeks can be interested in. Um, if you if you missed all the stuff that came out of Comic-Con for us this coming weekend, by the time you listen to this probably last weekend, uh, we will have all that information, uh, every, every, every bit of detail that's coming out of that, all of the, the latest gaming news, uh, which, which, which new uh, seasons of Telltale Games shows have just been announced. All of WWE, you know, wrestling, WWE, GFW, uh, New Japan, uh, MMA, uh, uh, movies, TV, comics, music, games, final show film stuff, um, other stuff too. Check us out, 401 Mania. Yep, we appreciate them, and we appreciate all of you for listening. We apologize for the length, and we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.